Welcome to the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to be on the cutting edge of SaaS tech sales. We provide the tools you need to take advantage of the rapidly changing sales environment. We bring you the leading experts on the front lines of SaaS sales and distill down our famous masterclasses into bite-sized practical tips. Your hosts will be Ash Alley and Matt Milligan. And on this podcast, we will be transforming your ability to sell more and smash your targets. Welcome back to another episode of the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast. And we're continuing our trend, our theme for this series with some amazing VPs, GMs. Uh, last week, we had the VP and GM of G2, the software review platform. This week, we have the country manager for UK and Ireland of an awesome business, a well-known brand in the consumer space as well, Streetwell. Today's guest is a heavy hitter. I mean, the record and the career journey speaks for itself. Some amazing businesses that today's guest has helped lead, build, and scale all over the world. Today's guest has led teams at brands such as Groupon, has built businesses uh, such as WeWork and, and Just Eat. Today's guest is Robert Ruiz. Robert, great to see you, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me here. Pleasure. Looking forward to chewing the fat and talking about some of the topics in today's episode. I always like to get started just by learning more about your journey. And it's been an amazing ride uh, by the looks of things. But like, how did you get started you know, working in commercial roles and what's led you up until at this moment? Well, I guess like 99.9% .9 of the people that dedicate themselves to sales, it was pure serendipity. I studied environmental chemistry, so nothing to do with this. But 25 years ago, when I finished my degrees in Spain, there were not many jobs on environmental chemistry, go figure. So I started having a summer job selling books door to door, no, no salary, just poor commission. And I wanted to make some money to go and study my master's degree on process engineering. And I got out of money. I had a lot of fun. And I said, like, I'm fed up of studying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some more years of sales and make some money and then I will study. Up until now, I managed to study. I didn't do the PhD. I did an MBA and a master's degree later. I was a car salesman, like a, a proper car salesman, which you learn a lot of very nasty, good tricks. And from that, I just moved from where I'm from, which is in the northwest of Spain to Madrid the capital city and I was on a fintech when fintech was not even a thing yeah. and the startup was not even uh, startups back in 2004 in Spain. I was there for two years scaling it up from uh, ground floor to, to a company managing 60 salespeople and something like 250,000 uh, transactions per day. From there I did my team management consulting. I recognize it. I, I also was a senior and I did my management consulting which yeah. was very interesting also to build some foundations on my career. And from there, I moved to Groupon as uh, MD for Spain and Portugal. We used to call it COO back in those days. And that is when I came to the UK after three years in Spain. We came for a turnaround, a couple of us, to the UK as VP of sales for UK and Ireland. And then I was on WeWork after three years uh, on, on Groupon here. The same team, Bali, that uh, we were on Groupon, we moved to WeWork. And I was head of growth UK, head of growth EMEA, VP revenue operations worldwide. And then I did a stint on just did on sales delivery. I was on a startup also in the last couple of years building them. And now I'm on Treatwell just managing UK and Ireland. So 
always managing around digitizing uh, SaaS business, managed marketplaces, and, and, and very commercial roles, which I, I really enjoy. Where to start, really? There's, there's so much there that I'm really excited to dive into, man. That's an amazing start. I noticed as well, you, you did a stint in management consulting. I had a meeting with the VP of Salesforce in San Francisco recently. She was in management consulting for like 15 years. Yes. She was saying like she, she thinks management consulting is one of the best places to build a SaaS sales skill set. Would you agree with that? I agree 100% because I think management consulting has very bad reputation. Mine was actually educational management consulting. So I was working with universities, governments, and then big corporations, selling them consulting and educational plans. It's really good because SaaS selling, if you go back to the basics, is everything about listening to your customer, building a plan. And then executing on, on this plan is not a fast sale. It's something that actually takes a lot of time. You need to build reputation, work your champions, and then working through the whole medic plan. Management consulting follows something very similar. You need to go actually herding a lot of different cats around the company, bringing them uh, with you, the company or the institution, bringing them with you, and then presenting a plan that actually is going to align with the goals of the C-suite of the company, but also with the people that are your main stakeholders, and then you need to deploy it. It's really good when you work for some couple of years, three, four, five, seven on management consulting, because it builds that muscle of actually aligning people. If you spend more time on that, maybe you just become too much of a enclosing a bubble, but it's a, it's a really nice school. Yeah, I totally agree. And that was a completely loaded question because I've also spent time in management consulting. <laughs> <laughs> But I just wanted you to back up what I was leaving as well. Totally. And I, I don't know about you, but I always used to admire the senior partners in the consulting organization. Like the way that those guys would just build really deep and trusted relationships. True advisors. I agree. I always didn't have to sell. It was like they weren't, they weren't selling, right? Exactly. That is one of the nice parts of selling because we, we, we strategize a lot and we have plans. I'm, I'm a super fan of systems, as you know. I think that many things can be systemized. But then at the end of the day, when it's you and your client, everything is about how you build that rapport, how you build that trust, and then how you actually manage to have that magic going on and continuing on time. And, and for that, systems and culture help. But then in the end, it's just human connection. And then the people that have been doing this for 30, 40 years and surviving, they know it's a default position for them. And that's one of the things that worries me about today's world of selling, that we're losing that. I'm a fan of data. But I think that we're losing so much time on data and dashboards that we have something that we used to have back in the day when I started. And probably you, if you did management consulting, we used to have it back in the day when you went to visit a client, you went by car or you went by the tube. And that half an hour of travel time, you were preparing yourself normally with a senior. You were preparing, you were role playing. And then the half hour going back to the office or going to the next client, you were actually doing a debrief on what went well or not. And that part right now, which we call coaching, uh, is, is not done as often as it was done back, back in the day, or it's something that happens once every week when you sit down for a one-to-one -one and you do a debrief and it's a bold meeting with a lot of things. So I, I think that that part of building those soft skills is fundamental and it's something that on, as sales leaders, we cannot forget that, that that's what, what gave us the chops to actually be able to be flexible right now. And just by pushing a script, you cannot scale. At least you gotta scale B2B SaaS or large amount of money uh, deals. It's so true. It's so true. And I actually reflect back on, you know, those, those moments, like you mentioned, those coaching opportunities are just the most valuable moments in a career, you know, particularly an early career of, of someone. I, I almost re remember it was actually a pitch at Just Eat, you know, and we're there, we're in the taxi. We've got all of our process maps rolled up in our tubes, pairing, role-playing and taxi on the way there with the partner and, and then 
immediately after pitch, you know, it's okay, quick bit of lunch, let's debrief. How did they go? That's just the perfect coaching environment. And it feels like perhaps in the digital way of selling now, we're maybe losing touch of that a bit. Agree. That's one of the things that worries me of having just full remote policies. I'm, I'm supporting on that. So I'm not any data on Twitter where we have a very flexible policy there. And my default position is I want talent, the best talent on the company, and I don't care where they are. I'm not going to be restricted to people living in downtown London or Manchester. Uh, we need to cover the best people across the country. But on the other side, we need to generate those spaces where managers are having meaningful conversation with them, at least on a daily basis, can be on WhatsApp, can be on Slack, can be on a huddle. Uh, just to debrief after every every large pitch because you can do it even on Slack. I was literally, before our call, I was doing it on with one person that we have on Manchester right now debriefing on a deal. It's so important to actually, for us to know what is happening on the ground, but also for them to polish and iron out some chinks. I think it's fundamental. You mentioned the word systems, Robert. I'd love to sort of dive in, go a bit deeper in terms of how you yep. think about systems, right? So you've led and scaled some of the most recognizable fast growth companies of the last 10 years. I've been fortunate to work at some of these companies and the reality is, you know, the external image that we portray is often that we have everything under control. Mm. I mean, behind the scenes, it's always chaos. It's chaos, right? yes. Talk to us a little bit about like your lessons learned in some of these journeys, particularly that comes to, you know, systems and how you, you, you view systems. I think that's one of the key things that in a subtle way you need to assess when you're when you're interviewing for an internal promotion to leadership positions, especially if you're hiring external people, people that feel comfortable working on, on muddy water, some gray areas. Like we need to delve on that, especially when you're in fast-paced environments, because what whatever holds true today is not gonna hold true tomorrow because you're gonna grow and you're gonna either outgrow your current pace or you're gonna need more funding and your investors ask you to have more new logos. But then in six months, I'm going to ask you, now I need you to monetize those new logos. So complete your acquisition policy completely changes. It's very important to have systems that can help you, one, scale very fast, but on the other side, it's being very flexible around what is the end goal. And I think that a system has normally a system or a process. A system is an amalgamation of process, has three defining uh, moments, input, throughput, and output. In, if you want to think about that on sales terms, the input will be the upper funnels, so everything that comes through your SDRs, your marketing team, your B2B, your inbound leads, and all these things. The throughput is the part where we're talking about the coaching, and then the output is when you close the deal, and then you, you do the account management and the CSM job. I think it's building along those lines a very flexible upper funnel that can actually be prepared to contain different constituencies at every time. Then coach and specialize the teams through the medic or other type of systems for them to have the versatility of understanding what makes a client trigger. And here's the important, going back to basics, so the whole thing about the selfie spend uh, situation on the Wolf of Wall Street, that's focusing on the benefits and not on the features. And then the most important, I think, on that side is on the account management side, being able to actually build the flexibility to have a portfolio that you're going to be managed in a remote way, focusing on producing churn, but also maximizing revenue. When you, when you have a clear understanding of what are the outputs that you want on each one of those parts, then you can build the systems and the sales motions. And, and then you can get deep, deeper and say like, okay, I'm going to do market uh, marketing campaigns or Facebook campaigns. I'm going to have my SDRs actually tailoring in a campaign now with marketing. I'm going to be cold calling. I think that building those structures where you have a clear output is, is, is fundamental. You mentioned there, like, you know, one of those systems that you found really valuable has been Medic. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking just off there about, you know, use of Medic in say like a WeWork context, it, it feels like there's perhaps a lot to learn from it. If we say like non-traditional SaaS, agree. In terms of how some of these really scalable systems are super effective, 
Medic is common sense. Medic presents you a solution, an scalable solution for a problem where you have multiple stakeholders. So you think about that. Medic answers when you have a seat that right now is very important. You will have probably a CEO. You will have a chief technology officer, and you may even have a chief growth officer involved. Those four people, at least, that you need to convince when you're selling software, at least. Okay, if not a, a COO and the, and the operations part. When you're selling on a company like WeWork, for example, office space, you need to still convince the CFO. You still need to convince the CEO. The CFO is, is going to ask you about the pricing, the amortizations, the capex. Yeah. The CEO will want to take care about his teams and his brand. Then you need to convince uh, HR. HR will need to be convinced about the welfare uh, of, of their employees and what is the preservation of the culture, the different culture of the company and not be absorbed by WeWork. And then you will go chat with the CDO because the CDO will have worries about data security, for example, and having a shared Wi-Fi. And, and you will need to actually create structures that are uh, segregating that network from the rest of the building. So if you think about that, the stakeholders are exactly the same. You're selling a product that is very different, but the stakeholders are the same. And that is why a system like Medic was really good. And, and, and that's why um, most of us, we, do, we did have a lot of real estate players on WeWork, but the vast majority of the sales structure came from data, came from LinkedIn, Polhorn, Salesforce, Groupon, from companies that used to sell these services at the scale, because in the end, the system solves a problem. But you have multiple stakeholders and you have one product and one output, and you need to actually reach out to each one of them. And Medic is, I would say, the most comprehensive tool that we have to actually amalgamate those stakeholders, treat them and give them every to each one of them what they need and then drive the conclusion that we want. How do you think about Medit versus like the deal size that you're selling? Because, you know, we often hear that it's, it's great for enterprise, more complex sales processes. But yeah, let, let's say you've got a more transactional sale, initial deal size is maybe less than 2K or 1K. What's your experience been of, uh, you know, a qualification criteria like Medic in, in that instance? I think... It's going back to the basics we discussed. Like the system is a tool that you need to adapt and you dial up and down in a different way. So I want to give you an example. That what I'm doing right now on Treatwell is a very transactional sense because we're talking with salons that can be a one-man band or can be a salon with a lot of different venues and locations across the UK or or the continent. So, so actually our public is very varied, but in essence, it's not like selling software to a 5,000 people. You're going to have probably the maximum amount of people you're going to be impacting is... 50 and the average people that you impact is three but still you're going to have one champion you're going to have one decision maker and one person that is going to control the cost so what the person that is going to control the cost is normally going to be an external accountant the champion is going to be the savviest ex-savviest person on the team which normally is one of the hairdressers one of the practitioners and then you have the ceo and the owner which is the decision maker which he or she what he wants is the same as always like maximize revenue and reduce costs what you do is you don't go full medic on them but you actually identify each one of them and you divide and conquer how you approach each one of them, maybe through a multiple approaches. So you go with one rep and one manager, or you can go one rep and one manager and myself, I can jump into a deal or one rep works to each one of them. So I think it's the same. The system needs to be scalable. The difference is that when we were we signed 30, 40, 50 large transactions per month, and here we're, we're signing 30, 40, 50 transactions every day. So you need to do it at scale and you need to reduce the amount that you involve in each one of them. But the framework, which is important, I think should remain. And, and in the end, that's a beautiful thing about the system is you need to dial them up or down and design them to actually acquire what you want, which is identify who are the key people that you need to actually convince and convert 
and then act upon them in a way that is meaningful to them. Makes a lot of sense. So almost a, almost hearing like a medic light approach. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's the approach. I, for example, I don't talk to my team about medic because they will not understand. What I tell them is like, I go very much down to earth. I tell them, who is the decision makers? What do they want? Let's address that. Makes a lot of sense. You've come out, love the, the systems framework of input, throughput, output. I mean, I'm assuming that in each of the builds that you've done, right, from Groupon through WeWork, et cetera, how much of those experiences have been transferable? Like, are there things where you look back on the journey and you're like, you know, that worked super well at Groupon. What were those things that have been really transferable for you as you've gone on these multiple builds? I would say on essence and on first principle, most of them, but then the business are way more different than I expected. For example, Grouper and Treat were very similar, but WeWork was a completely different piece. Actually, I thought it was a good approach. We were in the same way. And that was my first three months were failure after failure because I needed to reset myself. WeWork, it was a very high intensity transactional deal. So I needed to build systems where more flexible, more commercially savvy. I needed to actually review things faster and give feedback on the spot to people. So for example, one of the key things that you need to do as a sales leader is your pipeline management. Your pipeline management, back in the days on WeWork, I used to have a pipeline management every single day. Now, uh, maybe we say I'm, I'm more mellow, I'm having a pipeline meeting every 15 days. But what I mean by a, a pipeline review every day is that myself and the leaders and team leaders need to review the top 20 deals that they have, hot deals every single day with the reps and then push, 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 push. On WeWork, you cannot do that because the transaction will take more time because the transactions are more complicated. So you have a pipeline review weekly, and then you have bi-weekly a commercial pipeline review, which is the one that you actually de uh, delve deeper into the commercial aspects of the trade-offs, but also where you're asking for the internal support of the stakeholders of the company, the CEO, the CFO, to land a call with another CFO or a CEO. So it was not transferable immediately because the sales cycle was, was longer and the deal size was way bigger, like a, a normal end-to-end -end process on a group on a rat, you will take you two weeks and a half maximum. And then we work there, the average deal could be a month to six months. Got it. So it's about understanding the nuances of sales cycle lengths and deal sizes and then flexing the system. Exactly. Exactly. Just trying to always have the same thing. So what is the control that you have over the commercials? Where is the control that you have over the pipeline and the training that you give to your teams and then building the system uh, in a very flexible way? Because even if you think about WeWork, when I started at the beginning, we were very much an SME company. So, and that's what, what makes sense in principle, bringing some of those group on skills because the amount of companies that we're closing were, were higher and it was a smaller spaces and it was very fast. But towards the end, before the failed IPO, we were, we were dealing mammoth deals with very large companies that will take a whole building. That is a 12 month deal. So actually we focus completely the approach of the company to these large enterprise deals. And then it's, we became a SaaS business selling real estate. And then it was more meetings with finance, for example, in the beginning when, when we were selling the smaller spaces and the sales cycle was faster, we were sitting with construction and, and with engineering to see how, how fast can we produce. Towards the end, everything was uh, financial engineering about how do we actually structure a deal that is going to be worth 150 million pounds for the next five years because you need to have a lot of different aspects. So, and that was one of the things that actually worked really well from, for, for WeWork, but it was very complicated to transfer that to a proper healthy GNL and was part of our downfall that we have a very schizophrenic approach that the bread and butter of our occupation uh, on the buildings were small companies giving us a lot of rotation, but the bulk of the revenue backlog that we have and the profit came from those very large deals.
and they scale in very different ways. And it's very complicated to be able to actually to explain this to the markets and to transfer it to a profitable PNL. I think that was one of the things that we didn't do well back in those days. And one of the things that the company is still struggling a little bit to do right now. Wow. Super interesting. What a, what a story. I mean, what a journey. You've read the book. I've, you know, we, we were we were residents. That was the the first UHOB's office was the WeWork in Shoreditch on, um, it's like opposite that pub on the corner, like just off from that. Uh, they have seven over there. So you need to give me more, more cues. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it was a crazy journey. You know, the, the funny thing about the books, uh, like it's the same as always. Like I've seen worse things on, on other companies, but because you don't have a larger than life uh, character like Adam Newman, nobody cares. And probably, you know, also if you were a management consultant, you, you're seeing a lot of atrocities in your lifetime, but uh, they, they never made the cover of uh, any magazine because you didn't have CEO like Adam creating all this noise. There was a lot of value, like, like when you and I were, were chatting and, and people forget about that. On, on any given year before everything collapsed, we were accruing $4 billion of revenues. Like the, we were selling $4 billion on, on transactions. And... And it was crazy back in those days because the inbound machine worked really well. People wanted to be on, on WeWork because WeWork achieved something that was part of the vision of the company, which was the scale, convenience, and semi-luxurious to the office. The office space used to be boring, and we made it fun, and we made it semi-luxurious in an affordable way. And we did that because we scaled it in a building. When you have a building of 1,000 to 5,000 people, scale economies work at building level. Our mistake is that we couldn't make it scalable at worldwide level because we have different geographies and in some geographies than others we were very stretched in Europe for example the team did always a very good job and, and the PNL of the buildings and of the EMEA platform was always very healthy help me understand like 2018 well it was like maybe not bottom of the hockey stick but it was like maybe like it was it was, it was starting on the hockey stick let me give you an example so when I joined the first weekend that's something that we were we were was the best amalgamation of talent that I've seen in my life a lot of talented people and that's why Many of us still feel very dear, like I will never complain or bad mouth about we work. I think that that's not a good thing to do. And also there's a lot of people that I do respect still there. Let me tell you also from a personal point of view, it's slightly vindictive, but the vast majority of the people that have been talking about we work were very small operators and they didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. But my first week on, on WeWork, uh, it was full induction on, on sales enablement. We had Dan's story, which is the head of sales enablement now on Finastra. He was giving us and, and his team full induction for a week, just telling us how to sell and manage a pipeline on WeWork. And I was joining as head of growth and I was coming from, from a BP experience and they made me do it exactly the same, the same way, which I loved it. Then after that, the second week, you went to a building and you made yourself useful. And never mind if you were the last intern of the head of growth, you're going to be delivering the post. And I was delivering the post for a, for a week and I was learning how a building how a building was managed from the team. And I was like, very impressive. So those first two weeks were very educational, but I didn't know anything about the life on WeWork because I was embedded on the training and on the building. So the third week, we were starting October, Q4, and I knew that the targets were monstrous for Q4. And I got to my boss back in those days, Julio, uh, and I told him, Julio, go to Salesforce, build some reports, build some dashboards. So I'm always like... Uh, you see a salesperson and I'm decently good on that. And tell me what you see. And it was a loaded question. And so I started building my, my dashboards and same as we spoke, input, throughput, output. I started with upper funnel and I go to upper funnel and I see the leads overcoming and we didn't have anything. I mean, our target was something like, I want to give you a random number. Okay. Imagine it was like selling hundred units and times that we had 2% of the, of the target on the pipeline. Sales qualified lead versus your target needs to be three, four X. And we're having like 2% of that. 
So I just go in a moment and panic and say like, we're not going to hit target. Like we need to do something, a campaign or something. We have nothing. He starts laughing. He's like, you will see young Padawan. And as the months were passing and I keep on uh, getting to meet other people and learning the ropes, I start seeing the deals like falling like this. And it was brokers, inbound leads. The hype was so good, but also the products was such an excellent product. The lead generating machine was incredible. The deals were, I'm not exaggerating to you, Matt. I've never seen that in my life. The deals were falling on our lap. I mean, we need to do the, the work and close and do our due diligence, but everybody was begging us to the point that my job, when I learned the jobs towards the end of every quarter was arbitrating which deals we did we take and how do we organize the space. We're doing a process that we used to call Tetris, which is to actually fit, the, fit and move the offices and construct and reconstruct the offices so we could accommodate the demand. I've never seen that in my life when you have, you don't need to be called calling to generate demand. It was brokers, it was companies because the product was so good. And, and this is something that our job on sales, we can, we can have the best sales machine. If you have a good product, it was incredible. Like I can tell you literally that I was touring people. I was like, I don't care about you guys. And I see and your CEO is crazy cuckoo and I'll come and see the building. And they were, were walking down to the building. They will see everything. And it was like, immediately, okay, send me the contract. I'm going to sign right now. And I'm talking about deals where like quarter of a million, 300,000 pounds, decided like that in 20 minutes because the product was bloody awesome. And that was the design and the construction deal that were really good. I think that's what they call product market fit. Exactly. That's what they call product market fit. That is something that we're always battling, uh, battling with. That was the perfect uh, personification of that. Fascinating, however, that you spoke about like the, I love that enablement approach. First couple of weeks, put yourself in the shoes of the, even the postman. Uh, it's an amazing approach and goes to prove that even if you do have product market fit that's that strong in a hot market, you can't take your eye off the ball. You've still got to enable a, a high performing sales team. Especially because of what we discussed before, the key on system and scale. That's why enablement and the companies that are providing enablement are super fundamental to us right now, because they give us this flexibility that if you have an enablement program, uh, imagine that you're like eight months ago, eight months ago, if I was like, give me more customers, give me more da 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 da. Now everybody's like, give me more profit. I don't care about more customers. So the pivot is, is a pivot that is 180 degrees and it's very, very, very aggressive pivot. It's like going 200 miles per hour through the highway and then you take a, a very sharp turn to the right and you reduce the speed, but you cannot reduce down to 20 because you don't have the space to reduce to 20. And you need to do a very sharp turn and many, many companies right now need to do that, just indexing on, on profitability. You cannot do that by fighting like some people are doing or many people are doing. You fight everybody and then you try to hire everybody again. If you do that, what you're going to do is break two years of your PNL. You're not going to have time. The only way to do that is to have a very clear culture and vision and flexibility and then enable the people to actually understand why do you need to do that? Don't judge what happened in the past. Our job is not to judge what happened, happened. That's it. But understand why is this happening? Why, why do we need to do this? And how are we going to be doing that? And the only way to do that, a manager can give or a leader can give as many speeches as you want, but you need to be somebody on the trenches every single day, enabling them and, and coaching them for the next three to six months, every time that you change, you change the pipeline because you have a new product or, or similar, you're going to have three to four months of adaptation because the pipeline will need to be deconstructed and constructed again. But again, it's better three months or 24 months because you need to actually build your sales structure from scratch. I think that's, that's a fundamental part of enablement that more companies are understanding these days that 
the flexibility to actually operate at a scale with different necessities in different quarters. You can only have it if you have an enablement function that is plugging to the core of the business and on the trenches with you. Totally aligned. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And obviously we're recording this episode in a, a pretty interesting market right now. So June 2023. My personal observation, what I'm seeing is it's kind of two schools of thought. I think from an enablement standpoint, it seems like there's the leadership teams that really get it. Mm -hmm. And they see this as like the optimum time to be doubling down. You have to be supporting and building high performance in every seller where possible. I then see perhaps a school of thought of leaders who may be invested in enablement with an unclear definition of what its role was supposed to be in 2021, 2022, when the times were good and it was boom times. Mm -hmm. I think kind of saw that as a really easy thing to cut from yes. their balance sheet. In your experience, based on what you've experienced in these growth journeys, like what's your personal opinion and how do you see the, the kind of strategic value of enablement? I'm right now on a, on a situation that is semi-privileged because uh, Treatwell is a profitable company and we're, we're financed. So we need to do some adaptations, some tweaks just to be fiscally responsible because we don't know how acute is going to be the situation with the last data of recession in Germany and the potential recession in the UK that the Chancellor mentioned last week. That makes people a little bit edgy. Uh, especially when, when you need to be fun, finance your cash flow and, and you always need to be very responsible with that. I come from a point where I'm still hiring and, and we're still growing, so we can still invest even if it's, if it's moderate. I think there's two components here. Like one, your leadership team and your, you may say your, your board and your shareholders, what are they indexing on? And have you done the work to actually bring them on the journey of why do you need to grow or not? And the second is the personal experiences. And, and we have a situation right now that is very peculiar. And especially in the UK, I've been here for eight years and I see that I come from a country, Spain, it's not a, it's not a poor country, but it's not a rich country. And in Spain, you cannot, you don't have the level of investment that you have in countries like the UK, Germany, maybe France, and definitely the US. And in the UK and in the US, what has happened is there's been a, a vast influx of capital in the last 20 years. And there's a generation of managers that have only known boom types. They don't know how hard were the 80s. They don't know it. And the 80s were very hard on the US and on the UK, very hard on the, in the Spain, were very hard on the 80s and the 90s. The 2000s and 80s were, were boom time. So those managers don't have the jobs and the skills to actually understand why uh, a recession is so complicated, why inflation is such a peculiar situation and why you need to be actually controlling your cash and why it's important to actually retain your talent. Because if you don't retain your talent, even if you reduce the size of your force, but you retain your talent, you're going to be creating incrementals because when you see the performance of a sales team, and we all know it's the same thing, like 30% of your money, if not 40, is going to come for the top 10% of your players. So if you keep the top of your pyramid, you're going to safeguard the vast majority of your earnings and your profitability. But many managers have not done that due diligence or have experienced that situation. And I think one of the things that we are lacking right now, we're seeing, and in this case, unfortunate because our shareholders are veterans. That's one of the things that when I chat with some of the friends that are in this situation is people that have never experienced those lean times and they don't understand why the communication is different. And even the shareholders or the fans that are behind them, they've only grown and seen like tailwinds. They don't know how headwinds are. So they need to build that muscle. It's, it's something, it's a very peculiar situation that we have right now. Yeah. A really good commentary in terms of where we're at. And the point you made around, you know, holding on to your top performance, right? You spoke earlier about certain organizations that are perhaps cutting, 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 and then just planning to hold out and then just rehire. Yeah. You know, have they even factored in things like ramp up time? <laughs> I think to, to us, one of the decisions that we've taken here in the UK and I don't know, is 
I've hired one external manager and then the rest I'm going to promote on internal talent. I'm going to keep the best ones. And I told him like, look, it's going to be lean time. So the next seven to eight months, we need to be very sensible with cash, how we do with investment. We still need to grow with ambitious goals. Let's bring you on the journey and let's build you up to become the leaders of the future. And doing that enablement process and building trust and, and, and these, these people that are going to be growing with us, understanding the severity of the situation because the current situation on, on the UK is just hurting a lot of a lot of people that we know because of unemployment, cost of living crisis, and, and the industry that I'm working, like a lot of people are struggling because their business become uh, very unprofitable from in the last seven months. I think that that is going to build a resilience on this generation of leaders that when they are 45 or 50 and the next crisis will come in 20 years, they can remember and default back to what happened today in the same way that I'm defaulting back to what happened in 2008. Because many of the things that I'm feeling right now and I, what I don't flinch is because I was 28, 29, I was a, a very fresh and junior and, and a stupid manager uh, when the 2008 crisis happened and I didn't even knew what was happening. I was lucky enough to have really good people coaching me through those days. So I think that it's very important to retain your top top talent and nurture them. That doesn't mean that you need to spoil them with vanity, but invest on them, invest on the key people, the key leaders and the key performers because you will build your business upon them because the same as the situation now is complicated. In six months will be better and in 12 months will be better. And in 24 months, hey, baby, it's going to be business again and grow, grow, grow. And then everybody will say, like, I'm going to make an injection of capital, but I'm, start, uh, I'm expecting double-digit growth. That is going to happen again. It's going to happen in 10 months or in 20 months, but it's going to happen. That's the law of nature unless something cataclysmic happens, which hopefully is not going to happen. Then we don't care about growth. They ring so true. And it's exactly what I'm seeing right now. I'll share this resource in the show notes because I literally shared this with someone on my team today. I don't know if you've seen this McKinsey research. No. This is looking at the kind of generational shift. So you think Gen Z, the yeah. primary generation entering the workforce right now, and probably one or two top performers that are coming from this demographic, but top reasons why they choose to stay in their current job. Workplace flexibility, exactly mm -hmm. as you said, number one. Yeah. To hire the best talent, you have to be mm -hmm. flexible. Yeah. But look at that. Number two, career development and advancement exactly. of potential. Exactly. And think, think about that and everything makes sense. Like I'm 45, so I'm not that old, but I'm not that young. I'm in this situation when I was starting to be old news. But when I was 24, 25, the possibility of buying a flat and buying a car for me, uh, it was tough. It was tougher than my parents, but it was real. And I, and I bought my first house when I was 32 years old. Right now, when you're 24, 25, buying a flat, especially if you live in a big city, unless you win the lottery or you're a, a super, super, super investment banker, that's not going to happen. Not in your lifetime, and if you're going to buy a, a flat in London, it's going to be on the outside of London. What everybody is thinking right now is like, I need to build a career that is going to be long, it's going to be for the future, because that's how I'm going to be earning my living, and also need to satisfy myself with something. And though it's very sad, and it's a situation that is very unfair to the younger generations, I think they're going to be doing it better than we did, because I remember there was a pressure when I was, I bought the flat when I was 32, 33, and everybody was pestering me for like, why are you buying a house so late because I was paying for my master's degree before and my MBA and there was like this pressure and it's like and thanks God I didn't do that because some of my friends actually bought their houses when they were 25, 26 and then the crisis happened in 2008 and they found themselves that they need to buy the house because they were accumulating out of debt and they have nothing that of the things that I had of the postgraduate education that I paid for myself. Though it's very unfair to the younger generations because they don't have access to that they're nurturing muscles that we didn't do. So by the time that they are my age, they're going to be well more prepared 
than I am right now to do my job. So I'm not trying to do a silver lining or to say that it's good for them. It's a very unfair deal that we have right now. We haven't fixed society how to give a proper career future for the younger generations. It's a very unfair, but it's so rings so true. We're, we're showing us from McKinsey, like these people, they are condemned to build a career and, and to think about impact. And we as leaders, our job as a leader is only one, is to set our team up for success. So we need to set them up for success to have impact. That's what everybody's telling me on sales, after sales, marketing, finance, everybody that I'm chatting with that is 30 years uh, or below, they're telling me like, how can I have impact, Robert? They're not asking me about how can I buy a flat in Nightbridge because that's not going to happen. It's such an important point for, for us leaders to consider. And, and, and I think that closely lines to the point that you were making around culture, right? You know, it sounds like all of the teams that you built throughout your career, culture has been a, a really central part of of the success. It's the tie that binds us because it's a very tough journey and you're going to have very good years and very bad years. And the only way to survive and to persist is by doing that. And then if you want more self-interest than anything, like even if we live in London, which is a megalopolis, very big city, but it's a very small city, very small market, meaning I've been here just for eight years, but right now, currently I'm working with five people that I used to work eight years ago because along the journey we've trust each other and when i joined treatable I, I asked them to join me and they were happy to join me because i trust them and they trust me but also i was chatting with somebody that actually was connected with somebody was with somebody in my previous job so even if it's a city with tens of thousands of tens of millions of people it's a very small community what we have in sales in this digital industry and the SaaS industry and we know each other and culture is that's why it's so important because after X amount of years, everybody's going to know you by reference on one layer or, or another. And, and you need to be able to build that culture, that high-performing culture, where people will in the future be your clients or your champions. If you go to them, it's like, I want to do business with you. Please give me an intro to your CFO. Those things actually matter. That's so, so true. They're really spot on. I, I remember the really good, good ones that I've worked with through my career and also the really bad ones. That has something to say, like, don't be average, don't be mediocre because nobody will remember you. That's true. That's very true. Even recently, you know, I was uh, leading a sales process with a prospect last year. You know, one of the stakeholders joined the call was just like so, so rude on the call and like, completely dismissive of just why do I have to take this call with is this Matt guy's salesperson? Completely dismissive. I actually said to the champion afterwards, I said, you know, that was, I didn't appreciate that behavior was not great. Anyway, fast forward six months, one of my customers sees that I'm connected with this person on LinkedIn and says, Hey, I'm in the last two hiring for a new enablement leader. What do you think of this person? And it wow. was the same person that was. And, and you gave an outstanding review. I'm hundred percent sure. I would never, uh, you know, ruin <laughs> someone's career. I didn't have anything positive to say in the course. Yes, that, that, that's so very true. It's a very small community and, and everybody knows each other. I agree. Like the, this situation has happened to me also in the past with some colleagues and some clients. And it's very true because in the end, like, do no harm. That's very important and try to build something for the future. I agree with you. Absolutely. Robert, I mean, what an amazing conversation, you know, we've covered everything from the journeys, the challenges of scaling out, using systems to create order out of chaos, input, throughput, output, making sure you've got that understanding. So many great anecdotes from your journey over the years as well. I could continue the conversation all night over dinner, perhaps sometime. That would be great. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your insights and wisdom with the community. If any of our listeners, we have about 40% listener base in North America, 60% the rest of the world. 
if they would love to, you know, learn more from yourself, connect with you, assuming LinkedIn is a good place. Yeah. Bring me on LinkedIn. I'm open profile. I'm always happy to chat with anyone. Amazing. Robert, thanks so much. And thank you for having me, Matt. I really enjoy this. Likewise. Thank you. By uncovering blind spots in performance, motivation and skills, UHubs helps busy sales leaders at top SaaS companies to optimize their sales enablement so they can develop their reps and grow revenue. The UHubs Pulse platform visualizes each team's development needs, personalized upskilling and provides data-driven coaching recommendations. These save sales managers 40 plus hours per quarter and help reps to ramp up 30% faster. Supercharge your sales team by booking a demo today.